Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, it's 3, 2, 1, Go with Cosmo Macero. Then, Hugh Drummond interviews Amanda Hunter from the Barbara Lee Foundation about vice presidential pick Kamala Harris and the importance of voting. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I catch up on elections and the RNC this week. First up, 3, 2, 1, Go. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321GO on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. Joining me here on 321GO is Kyanne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Kyanne, how are you? I'm good. How are you? All right, let's jump right in with mail-in voting. Uh, big source of conversation, discussion, debate, and controversy. Uh, there have been some... Uh, at, at at least anecdotal and maybe more incidents of uh, inefficiency or system breakdown. Uh, what uh, what's your view on this, and uh, what's your experience been so far? Have you had to mail in? Uh, have you had to mail in vote? I am a mail in voter this year. Um, I have never done it before, but I'm not currently in Massachusetts. So I received my ballot in the mail a couple weeks ago. I brought it in the house, opened it you know, colored the the boxes, put it back in the envelope, and then put it immediately back in the mail um, for the mailman to take, and it was gone. And then I tracked my ballot on the Secretary of State's website, and my ballot was received um, on the 18th, so I know that my ballot is in, which is reassuring, uh, particularly after a Washington Post story this week said that more than 500,000 mail ballots were rejected in the primaries. Um, looking forward to the presidential election. I think that's even more concerning. Um, you know, people are mailing in their ballots for a lot of different reasons. Of course, this year is exceptional to say the least. Um, I am certainly a person who never has before. I've always enjoyed going to my polling place. I've never really faced exceptionally long lines. Um, and I think that this has been a different experience seamless so far, but all of that also happened about a week before all of the announcements and the news related to the postal system um, kind of came to light. So I don't know what it will look like and if I will have to alter how I deal with my mail-in ballot for the presidential. That's yet to be. Perfectly makes sense. You're not around. You're not in Massachusetts. Perfect candidate for mail-in voting or absentee. traditional absentee. Uh, the difference is too uh, complicated for me to sort out on, on this program. But I mean, look, I, I, there really isn't a difference. There really uh, isn't a difference. No. The, the terms are used interchangeably. Um, people who request ballots are usually known as absentee voters because they're absent from polling place on election day. Um, obviously, the president and the the campaign have been trying to say that mail-in voting is fraudulent, but absentee voting is okay. Um, that is a very mixed message that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I would encourage people who have questions to actually do some research about this um, because mail-in voting fraud is so exceptionally low that there's five zeros before the six percent, um, the number six in a percentage of how much voter fraud has been found 
in the last 20 years. I get that. And I don't I don't believe this is going to lead to widespread voter fraud. What about voting? What about vote failure, though? What about look, my father was a letter carrier for 40 plus years. So was my brother. Right. I come from I'm like the family business. I didn't go into the family business of being a, a letter carrier. <laughs> Uh, the mail is an imperfect system, so there's going to be some level of imperfection. And when it's a close election, that could be an issue if we're talking about thousands of ballots somewhere. But that's not really my point here. Um, I, you know, I'm someone that likes to avoid waiting in lines if possible and stuff. I love the idea, not the idea. I love the process of voting. I love election day. But a number of times in recent elections, whether they were local, municipal, or or something else. I've done early in-person voting. I plan to do that. I pl I did plan to do it today. It's not, I'm not going to be able to make it, but I'll I'll, put, I'll do it this week before it's too late. You know, remember that the initial push for a comprehensive camp or or an all-out campaign for mail-in voting was as a defense mechanism against COVID-19, where so people who are at high risk to have to avoid lines and congregating, which Totally makes sense. And you know what? There's a lot of people, I think, that have fallen into that category still in different demographics who feel like, you know what? I'd rather just do the mail-in voting because I don't want to have to go there and wait in line and have to wear a mask and be near a bunch of people. Totally get it. I got to tell you, Cayenne, I'm seeing a lot of people talking about their mail-in ballots. First, I see them saying, Hey, great to get out at XYZ restaurant and support local business. Or, oh, just found this wonderful cantaloupe at Trader Joe's. Or they're over here, they're over there, and now they're like, just mailed in my ballot. What, what's going on? If you're making a political statement, well, okay, I guess. But that's not the point. The point here is not to, I don't think the point is to promote an expansion into widespread mail-in voting. Why? Why? Why choose a less efficient, more, uh, uh, you know, with, with with more risks of potential unknown failures, when that's not what it's designed for? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe there is, uh, you know, the mail-in voting is supposed to be for people who either are unable to be there, the traditional absentee voters. Or people who are at risk or just feel uncomfortable. And, I, and that could be anyone. And I get that. But there's a lot of people making statements with their mailed-in ballots. I see it every day on Facebook and Twitter. My guess is that your experience with in-person voting depends largely on where you have always gone to vote. If you have faced long lines and waiting times. Um, as I said earlier, I've generally never had a big problem where I have voted, uh, but I, it's a big school gymnasium and there's room outside. So logistically speaking, when I think about voting in person, um, it seems probable that it would be feasible that you could space out six feet. You could put the actual areas where you where you vote in the dividers. You could leave space. It seems possible um, rather easily, but I think that's personal to my location. I think there are a lot of people, and particularly when we start looking in cities and urban centers where they have waited for so long, even on a good voting day, that then putting in these practices of six feet of space and probably having to take out some of the uh, little desks or areas <laughs> where you actually vote, 
um, would make those lines significantly longer. And if that's the case, the last thing we want is that to discourage people to vote. So maybe that is why a lot of people are saying, I'm going to vote in person because I can, and I want to mitigate those lines wherever possible because lines and waiting times, as we have seen, have led to either people leaving or getting turned away. And um, that's just, I think, now more than ever, uh, but certainly should never happen. Um, so that's my thinking, is, is that it's a personal thing based on what your experience has been. And the ultimate goal of having more people vote in via the mail is hopefully that will mitigate some of those extensive lines and waiting times that additionally putting social distancing measures in place would only exacerbate. I get that. I do. I'm a big fan of the in-person early voting. I mean, that's like paying your water bill. It's like, it's like you and the nice people in town hall and like one person and you're in and out. It, you know, I've never ever experienced yeah. any kind of wait with that. So I think that's a great solution, but it's not for everyone because some people understandably feel like they're at risk and and that's why that's the that's why we have mail-in voting in my opinion but uh, a lot of people shooting ballots into the mail so we'll see what happens all right cayenne go vote no matter how you do it go Go vote vote. All right, up next on 321GO, we're joined by Steve Hassan. He's the founder of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center. He is one of, in fact, Steve, I think I'll dispel with the one of, you probably are the leading cult expert in America and also author of The Cult of Trump. Steve Hassan, thanks for joining us on 321GO. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And I I have the unique distinction of not only being a former member of a right-wing fascist occult the Moonies, but I also am a mental health professional, and I've been helping people for over 40 years to exit all kinds of destructive, controlling relationships and groups. Yeah, you do, you do terrific work with people uh, really in need and at risk, uh, and I've been following your work for some years. It, it reemerged uh, uh, vividly uh, with the release of your book, The Cult of Trump, and and how you really get in depth with what I would call the cult-like features of uh, of this of this president, this presidency, and his followers, um, and, and certainly many would, uh, uh, including probably some of our listeners, many would uh, would reject or be offended by that notion. But it's really based on science and research and experience, and I'd love you to talk about it a little bit. Sure. So first of all, let me just you know, spell out that, uh, that your listeners should think of influence on a continuum from ethical, healthy influence to unethical, destructive influence. So there's a, what I refer to as the influence continuum that's vital to assessing, you know, facts versus disinformation or propaganda. Um, and, uh, so for example, in the legal system, informed consent is vital. Uh, and yet my experience with destructive mind control groups, there's a lot of lying that's done, not only outright lying, but distorting information or withholding vital information. 
And the goal of un unethical influence is really uh, uh, dependence and obedience uh, on an authoritarian leader or ideology that's very black and white, us versus them, good versus evil. And you're really expected to suspend your critical analytic faculties and your conscience to blindly follow what the ideology is or what the leader says you should believe and do. And then I'd like to just quickly add that I have a model that I developed based on Chinese communist uh, brainwashing programs of the 50s of Robert Lifton and Margaret Singer and others that I call the BITE model of mind control. And that stands for, the B stands for behavior control, then it's information control, thought control, and emotional control. And so the, the concepts are all on my freedomofmind.com website as well in, as in my four books. But with the BITE model and the influence continuum, one can look at any group or any relationship even, like a controlling husband or wife, for example, uh, and ascertain if it's really destructive and healthy or really healthy or somewhere in between. Okay, so if you use that continuum or that scale, you, you can you can measure the influence uh, of just about anyone and, and determine whether it's a positive or negative. Does that mean the conclusion based on your book is that uh, this president has had a, a purely negative influence on all those who are following him? Or, or how, how do you reconcile the model uh, and the continuum with you know, the practical experience of, of the presidency? We're, we're all experiencing the presidency. So, so, yeah, yeah, so I, I really try to avoid black and white simplistic you know, descriptions of anything. Yep. Um, but I, I, I want to start by saying that uh, I, I have in chapter three of the cult of Trump, uh, the descriptions of uh, malignant narcissism um, uh, the grandiose self-centered behavior, the fantasies of power and attractiveness, need for praise, entitlement, lack of empathy, but then the the antisocial things like thinking there he's over above the law, the lying, the exploitation, the sadism, the violence, the threats, the paranoia, and the inability to trust. So in chapter three, I compare him, you know direct quotes from him with Jim Jones. Sun Myung Moon, the leader of the cult that I was in, Hubbard of Scientology. And really, uh, this profile is the opposite of a healthy political leader. Uh, and, and I want to emphasize everybody has a little bit of narcissism, especially anyone who wants to be in the spotlight or wants to have um, power in, in, in the public sphere. But when you get into malignant narcissism, there's a flagrant disregard to, to facts, to the law, to checks and balances. And in the case of Donald Trump, to the constitution, to uh, the, the laws of, of, of our land. Um, but I wanna also talk about the fact that in my research for this book, I discovered there are actual destructive cults that are influencing Donald Trump's uh, administration and who have their own 
um, uh, authoritarian hold over their followers. And so the cult of Trump is really comprised of a lot of different cults, but organized around power in the White House. And, and, and structurally, what really needs to happen is not just merely voting him out of, of power, but there are millions of Americans who sincerely believe in him and think that he's a great patriot and helping America. And we need to discuss how we can um, come back together again as a country to look out for one another instead of increasing this um, fear and paranoia and hatred of the other. And furthermore, uh, we need to, to have trust in, in, in the media to be uh, telling us facts and not just propaganda. Yeah. Um, Steve, I got to ask, this is pretty heavy duty stuff about a president. It, it could be considered in some uh, circles explosive. Have you experienced negative blowback? Have you experienced, uh, you know, um, sort of unpleasantries as a result of this war? Oh, of course. And lots of trolls. And I speak about Putin and Russia influencing the Trump uh, administration. And that's clear. And uh, what's also clear is, is their involvement in social media to uh, accelerate the whole QAnon phenomenon to, uh, to, to deceptively recruit massive numbers of Americans to believe that, um, you know, there's this Illuminati satanic cabal of traffickers when in fact there, there is organized crime and there are absolutely traffickers. In fact, I've been working to help victims of trafficking for years. But this notion, again, that somehow he, who's a misogynist who has, I think, 20 or 30 lawsuits against him by women who allege that he's abused them sexually, to believe that Trump's going to end trafficking and save children is very, very difficult to, uh, for anyone to take seriously. And we need to think about how we're going to heal the country. And for me, the answer is really widespread education about what we know about social psychology and social influence and encouraging people to learn how to reality test their sources of information. Because if something's legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny. And if it isn't, you'll wake up. And that's what happened with me. In 1976, in my deprogramming, as, as much as I was fanatically following Moon, and I even said, and this is going to shock your listeners, but as a Jew, I came to be indoctrinated to believe the Holocaust was necessary because the Jews didn't accept Jesus. And on the fourth day of my deprogramming, even when they were making comparisons with Hitler and Moon, I said, I don't care if Moon is like Hitler. I've chosen to follow him and I'll follow him to the end. I said it much louder, but I don't want to shock your listeners. But then I woke up and I realized, wait a minute, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, then I can't trust him. And if he's a liar, how could he be a representative of God? Because the God that the, the Moonies teach is a God of truth. So my, my critical faculties started kicking in, and then I realized, oh, my God, what, has, what have I been doing for these years recruiting people into this cult? 
you touch on as we uh, close out here in the book. You you, you introduced the QAnon uh, uh, phenomenon cult, and, and which has um, really emerged publicly um, in, in, in just the last, as we sit here in the end of August, in the last uh, uh, month or month and a half, uh, as we as we follow the progress of the campaign uh, environment. Um, what can you tell us about QAnon as we close out? Um, so I actually know one of the founders of the anonymous movement. His name is Greg Hausch. Uh, he went to jail. He was a hacker. And he told me, I know the guys who started QAnon. It was a total joke. It was a total goof on Trump. But then they realized they could make money selling merchandise. So they started monetizing it. And then he told me the Russians came in. And, um, and what we're seeing now is on Twitter, on Facebook, elsewhere, is a very concentrated psyops campaign, psychological operations campaign, uh, largely orchestrated by Russia, but also Christian right using something called fourth generation warfare, which I'm about to do a blog about, um, which is to delegitimize leaders, delegitimize institutions, delegitimize science and facts, and to confuse people, disorient people, to numb them out. So they kind of surrender to the voice of certainty who says, I'm going to fix America. Um, and what we really, really need is, is like I was saying earlier, uh, everyone to take the time to learn about how the mind can be manipulated and how to reality test who is a reliable person to, to, uh, to dispense information or to lead our country and not. And we really need to have checks and balances of power and abuse to stop the corruption because the, the corruption is huge right now in the political system. And we need Americans to believe in the power of voting and, and to protect voter integrity, that the votes will count. All right, Steve. Steve Hassan, author of The Cult of Trump and founder of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center. Thanks for joining us on All Way On Air. It's been a fascinating and, and to some degree, mind-blowing conversation. Yeah, I'm happy to talk again and fill it out with some more details if you ever want. Thank you, Cosmo. For All advice. right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Sure. And finally, it's that time of year, August. You know what that means? Sales tax holiday time. Woohoo! Uh, couldn't come sooner. <laughs> couldn't come soon enough in this terrible 2020 to provide some relief. Uh, uh, you know, one of the industry's hardest hit probably doesn't get really any relief or much from this. The restaurant industry, I suppose. I suppose retail shopping motivates some uh, outdoor dining, but. Anyways, that's not the point of this. The point is stimulus in Massachusetts sales tax holiday. Go support your businesses, particularly those local, smaller businesses, and, uh, you know, 
have some fun. Buy a new TV. Yeah, and, and you know, the savings has almost become secondary, even though it's significant when you're making a big ticket purchase, right? It, 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 you know, in the in the best of times, and maybe this will be, maybe this year will be that way because it's a, a reason for people to be supportive uh, to local merchants. But in the best of times, it's just it's just kind of a reason to get excited and and and, and go out and uh, you know and 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 spend some money and put some money into the economy. Um, just so happens now that retailers are in desperate need of support. So uh, yeah, this is yeah. this if there ever was a year to take advantage of it, this is it. It's definitely it. Go, you know, you our all of our I would imagine people's couches have wear and tear. Maybe you need a new TV or another TV. Um, maybe your kids need computers and iPads and things for school. You know, whatever it is, get out, try and find it at a small business, maybe get offline and um wear a mask. Awesome. <laughs> That's gonna do it for this week's edition of three two one gold, recorded literally at various locations across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and these United States. <laughs> Our producer, Catherine O'Brien, thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. I have the honor of speaking with Amanda Hunter, Director of Research and Communications at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, a nonpartisan organization aimed at advancing women's representation in politics. Hi, Amanda. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. It's always great to talk with you. It's great to have you back on. Um, well, to start, uh, the United States just marked the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Uh, the 19th Amendment states, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on the account of sex. Um, how much progress have women made since the women's uh, voting rights movement? Well, that's a great question, Hugh. And I think the timing really couldn't be better for this centennial in so many ways. One reason that our founder, Barbara Lee, started this organization is because her grandmother used to tell her what it was like growing up in a time when women were not able to vote and about watching the suffragists march up Fifth Avenue. And one thing that we talk about a lot at the foundation is how it took a long time for women to be able to get the 19th Amendment passed. It took over 70 years. And we don't like to say that women were given the right to vote because that's not what happened. Unfortunately, the 19th Amendment was really mostly for white women, and it took a much longer time for women of color to earn the same kind of voting rights, and still we're seeing voter suppression happening across the country. So it's important to keep in mind when we're feeling frustrated about progress that the suffrage movement took a very long time, and there were generations of women who crusaded for the 19th Amendment that never got to see it ratified or adopted. So I think that's one important lesson. And then the fact that we look around the country now, and certainly at this critical moment with the hearings of the post office happening and voter suppression threats happening across the country, certainly seeing the long lines during the primaries and problems that people had voting, it seems like a really important time to reflect on the fact that voting rights are still challenged in this country. And there's really no more important time than this to 
keep a focus on the fact that everyone needs to be able to have access to voting, especially during this pandemic, which adds another layer of complication. Yeah, that's uh, so true. So I guess fast forward to to the uh, current election. Uh, Kamala Harris is the Democrat nominee for vice president. It's only the third time in U.S. history that a woman's been nominated as a uh, presidential running mate. Uh, what does the foundation's research show about how voters assess a, a woman candidate? Well, we were so excited to see Senator Harris make history as only the third woman selected as a running mate on a major party ticket, the first woman of color. And it's also important to keep in mind that we're in a completely different moment than they than we were 12 years ago. The last time we had a woman running mate, Sarah Palin, in 2008, not just in the way that campaigns are run, the growth of social media and technology, but also the culture and attitudes around women running for office. We've known for a long time from our research that women face additional barriers when they seek executive office. And this particular executive office is a heartbeat away from the presidency. A woman has never yet occupied this office, so there are still in many ways an imagination barrier with a lot of voters when it comes to having a woman VP, not to mention a woman president. But the other side of that, that I think everybody needs to keep in mind is that Senator Harris has navigated double standards as a woman of color with a career in public service for the better part of two decades. So any of the sexism and the racism that she will unfortunately face during this campaign will be nothing new to her. And in a way, she's better equipped to navigate these challenges based on her previous experience. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only been, uh, what, just over a week since Senator Harris has, has joined the ticket. Are you seeing any uh, positive or negative trends um, uh, related to her candidacy play out? Well, what's really different now is that women are more politically engaged than ever. We did some research last year and found that in the wake of the Women's March in 2017, women are at a much higher level of political activation and report no plans to slow down, particularly millennial women and women of color are leading the charge. So even though we're only four years out from 2016, when we saw Hillary Clinton face a lot of sexism. The difference now is that women are fed up and they're standing up for each other and themselves in real time. This time around, we're seeing a number of different response and war room projects from groups like Time's Up that are formally organized. And we're also seeing kind of a loose affiliation of other women electeds and public figures and even just private citizens that are calling out the sexism in real time. And that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's certainly been, um, I, I think it is very different from, from 2016. Do you think that uh, you had mentioned that her um, uh, life as uh, a woman of color, as a, as a minority, has, uh, will bring, uh, illustrates that, I mean, she brings a whole set of experience to the table that, that, um, um, you know, will will probably make a difference here. Are are those? Do you have research? Do you do you, um, in your conversations? Are you seeing communities of color, uh, minority communities, um, uh, 
activate around uh, this um, this candidate? Well, what we've seen in the past few years have been a record number of women running for and elected to office and a record number of women of color as well. We know from our research that, unfortunately, women of color don't just have to navigate double standards around sexism. They have an additional layer of higher and double standards due to racism. A lot of times when women of color seek executive office in particular, they have to run what we call a campaign of belief, which means in addition to the main stage campaign with voters, they have to spend much more time convincing donors and the media and thought leaders that it's possible for them to win. But the upside with Senator Harris that's really exciting is that she's really the definition of what we call a 360 degree candidate. She shows voters the whole of her human experience I think it's a lot harder and we haven't really seen it happen effectively yet for people to stereotype and attack her in an effective way because you can't put her in a box. She is a biracial woman who went viral for going into Senate committee hearings, meticulously prepared and just eviscerating witnesses, showing voters that she's strong. And yet there are also videos of her bending down to make eye contact with young girls and having moving interactions where she's inspiring them. And, you know, the the viral video of her kind of calling out Senator Mark Warner for making a gross looking tuna melt, joking around. So she's showing voters a full picture of who she is. And that's a real strength because she has authenticity and it's a lot harder for those long-held sexist tropes like her voice is annoying or she's a school marm when she's bringing such a vibrant picture of herself on the campaign trail. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do wonder how, um, I mean, this campaign cycle is so non-traditional due to the global pandemic and um, just the, the difference for a candidate of not being able to, you know, some candidates get they feed off the energy of a crowd uh mm-hmm. when you're physically present with with a crowd and this is going to be different and um i i do think that her uh extensive experience in in politics in california in the united states senate um is really going to uh, make a difference and um you know I, I could see her uh really relating to audiences uh in a way that um that maybe will um, that that we haven't seen to date. Absolutely, and we saw during the 2020 primary that she really brings a a sense of joy to the campaign. She mm-hmm. seems to really, really like the retail politics of meeting people and having those interactions. And even after her speech last week, when they had this sort of odd moment in time of instead of a crowd applauding, it was a grid of people on Zoom. <laughs> She really looked genuinely happy to greet that crowd via Zoom. So regardless of the medium, I think she's able to genuinely relate to voters. And similar to her running mate, Joe Biden, seems to really enjoy listening to people. That's so true. I mean, it's it's interesting that, um, but you can, a voter or even a, a listener, you know, when you listen on a radio to a radio or a podcast or something, you can tell when someone is genuinely enjoying themselves or 
you, you can feel the emotion. And mm-hmm. uh, I certainly, um, I, I, I do relate to that. I feel that um, she, she does convey that kind of optimism and, and connectivity that, uh, that is, uh, that'll probably make a difference in, in this kind of virtual campaign environment. So um, tell me, tell us a little bit more about the foundation and how you support women in politics and, and maybe some of the research that you, that you've done and, and, you know, research you might have planned. Sure. Absolutely. So for more than 20 years, we have done nonpartisan research out of our office in Cambridge based on the obstacles and opportunities women face when they seek office. And we really specialize in executive office because our founder, Barbara Lee, realized after the 1998 gubernatorial elections, when only the two incumbent candidates won their races, that women face additional barriers when they seek executive office. And since then, we've studied every single gubernatorial race involving a woman candidate. We do extensive research interviewing campaign staff and candidates and tracking press coverage and such. We kind of build that into our reporting biannually. And we also do nonpartisan research looking at various issues. So our most recent study that we put out a couple of months ago was around how voters respond to women handling a crisis. And oddly enough, we started this work before COVID-19 was even on the tips of people's tongues. It was really the end of 2019 that we started looking at it. And now it is so timely because what we found is that although unfortunately most leaders don't get to decide what type of crisis they are dealt and have to handle, voters have a very particular idea of what they would like to see from their leaders, regardless of the type of crisis. And what they want is someone who is strong, someone who is decisive, someone who takes accountability, but is also a team captain someone who listens to experts and yet also listens to affected populations. So it's really a combination of strength and embassy and empathy. And voters know that women tend to excel in both of those traits. Well, Amanda, it is, um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, any final thoughts? Um, we definitely want to get you back as we, um, uh, get past election day and, and talk about women throughout the country who have uh, either returned, been reelected, or have uh, come to uh, elected office for the first time. Yes, absolutely. That would be great. And we have a record number of women running for Congress again. So there's definitely a lot to watch in this election cycle. And I think as people are watching news coverage and reading, it's important to keep their own bias in mind when it comes to women and executive leadership and talk to their family and friends if their family and friends seem to be buying into those old tropes. Because Senator Harris is challenging stereotypes every day, but it takes all of our awareness to really make societal change. That's so true. It's incumbent on us. So if um, listeners want to learn more about the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, um, how can they do that? So they can go to our website, which is BLFF.org, or also follow us on Twitter or Instagram. That's great. Thank you. Um, 
Thanks again, Amanda. Uh, pleasure to speak with you and uh, appreciate you making time to be on Away On Air. Anytime. Thank you. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you, sir? Fine. I'm doing fine. It's good to talk to you. Oh, it's good. It's been a week. And, uh, it's been a week. I don't know which Every one. Every week feels like a long week. <laughs> but it does. Um, but you know, at the end of the week, you say, where did that week go? Where yes, double-edged sword. Anyway, it's Thursday, so it's Two Minutes with Tom. Yes, and welcome back to Two Minutes with Tom. Let me guess, it's, we're talking about politics generally, the Republican National Convention in particular, the um, maybe because we're in Massachusetts, the Marty Kennedy senatorial race. Anyway. No shortage of uh, of political topics for discussion. Well, it's that time of season, and it's um, it's that kind of season. Anyway, um, we're only we're only a few days away from the primary here in Massachusetts, the Democratic and Republican primaries. Mm -hmm. Not much happening on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, we've got uh, three or four congressional, I guess two or three congressional seats that are being contested um, and, and people are watching. And we've got um, we've got a Senate race, which is hotly contested, although this morning in the paper, they say that there's a breakaway candidate and Ed Markey. Uh, the, the, the numbers had been extremely close until this time. Mm -hmm. Now, three different polls are showing anywhere from from eight to I think twelve points. Twelve point lead. leading. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. So, you know, it's it's beginning of the last weekend. Momentum is clearly on one side. We'll see where it winds up. People have been voting here in Massachusetts for the last week or so, maybe longer. I mailed in my ballot a couple weeks ago. You did. I you did. did. And we got ours in the mail this morning. I don't know why it took so long, but we got them and we, we made them out and we put them in the mail. And so they've got to be postmarked no later than the uh, the 1st of September at, I guess, midnight. At right. And can, can uh, you know, Cosmo and I talk about mail-in voting um, on the episode this week too, but also just how easy it was. Mail-in voting was so easy. It is, you fill it out, you put it back in the envelope, you put it right back in the mailbox. For me, it was all of a four-minute exercise, which was really nice. It was really nice, that's right. And then I tracked it, and I know that it was received, so that was also important. So next week at this time, we'll be talking about who won, why yeah. they won, and it will be a much clearer picture as to what the strategies were and, and how they either worked or didn't work. Mm -hmm. On to the Republican National Convention. It's a different scene this, this time around from 2016. The occupant of the White House has chosen to use the White House as the platform of which the family apparently are going to be making speeches. Um, and it's different because it's never been done before. Um, for right or for wrong, it's never been done before. And I think, I think the, 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 the most important thing here is that really no substance comes out of anybody's mouth other than platitudes. Um, there was only one recognition of COVID, and that was by Mrs. Trump. Um, there was no, there was no compassion. There was no empathy. There was no sympathy. 
other than that, for what is going on in this country right now, um, all the finger pointing is that if Biden is elected, the world will go to hell in a handbasket. And, uh, and just a, a blatant, almost just ignoring the current state of the nation, of the mm-hmm. fact that we have lost, you know, countless, countless lives. Um, you know, the first lady speech was really the only one that talked about the divisiveness in terms of race inequality that is happening, that has touched on um, deaths and sickness related to COVID-19. And it, it truly is, they're, they're presenting um, an America that in a lot of ways is, is just not accurate right now. Um, and certainly a clear contrast to what we saw last week in the DNC, but also just another indication of how different um, the tone is of this administration and, and the party right now. I was talking to a friend last night who has been to Greece and to that side of, of Europe um, and just talking about the disdain that people in far off places, in far off capitals of the world have for this administration in Washington and that he's struck by it. Although he himself voted for Trump four years ago, will not be doing it again. As I've said in the past, whether we're talking about COVID-19 or whether we're talking about politics, I, I, I don't know how, when, or, or exactly how uh, or where, but we're gonna have a brighter day. That I guarantee, both politically as well as health-wise. Always nice to talk to you, Kanye. You too. Have a good one. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.